0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about other high crimes. Not high crimes and misdemeanors, other high crimes and misdemeanors. Meaning of the word is. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Ms. Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people.
1: I'd like to publicly acknowledge that I, I recognize the pain and the suffering that they've gone through because of this. Um, I I wouldn't dream of asking Chelsea and Mrs. Clinton to forgive me, but I would ask them to know that I am very sorry for what happened and for what they've been through.
0: December 19th of this year will mark the 12th year anniversary of the House vote to impeach U.S. President Bill Clinton, in 1998. This is not something that I want to cite as an anniversary worth remembering. This is actually, in my opinion, one of the biggest mistakes the U.S. Congress has ever made, and probably the biggest mistake the Congress has made in my lifetime. I'll come back to the reasons why in just a minute, but I want to frame them around something that is potentially embarrassing to somebody in my family or my extended family. So I don't want to name any names here, but I'm going to tell you exactly the exchange that occurred... When I was vacationing at the time that some of these allegations came to light, it's important to understand that despite the fact the House of Representatives acted in December, at least decisively acted in December, to impeach President Bill Clinton on two counts... It had been going on for months before that, and this was uh, something that had been building from a political perspective because a lot of the pre-election activities were designed to see if the United States Congress could you know, shift its balance of power, if the Republicans could gain seats somehow, if the uh, vote that was going to take place that November could build some sort of national referendum about whether Clinton should continue to be the president. And so in the summertime, when this first kind of came to light and, and it was pretty clear that there was going to be an ugly political battle and perhaps some legal questions, the first time I think I had heard anything really definitively, I think I'd heard you know, the name Monica Lewinsky, but I'd heard Monica Lewinsky, President Bill Clinton, sexual activity, all of that stuff. A member of my family turned to me and said, at last, now we've got him. And it's In light of that, I think, and the fact that that was not an unusual perspective, perhaps among Republicans, that I'd like to frame this and say, you know what, perhaps the biggest problem with the entire impeachment process, the entire buildup to it, all the allegations, including the ongoing investigations is that none of it had any real solid legal standing. It was all simply a matter of saying that in the minds of a lot of people, the American people had made a big mistake at the polls. We never should have elected this guy. We certainly shouldn't have reelected this guy. And now, through any means necessary, through any charge we can come up with, did he spit on the sidewalk while jaywalking in Los Angeles in 1973? Did he do something? Because if he's violated any law, if he's committed any crime, If he's leveraged his uh, political authority, if he's abused his power in any way, now we've got him. And that's kind of the question. So for those of you who don't remember or have perhaps under the trauma, if you're a United States citizen, put it out of your head, essentially what happened? Well, the president was defending himself from allegations related to land deals, related to his handling of FBI files, related to decisions to terminate members of the travel office for the White House. Uh, related to the uh, death, presumably by suicide, of of someone associated with him personally, and somebody who had served on his staff, and related to a woman named Paula Jones, who had alleged that you know President uh, then Governor Clinton of Arkansas had exposed himself to her and made an inappropriate offering of of sexual activity to her, which she declined. Years later, the allegation that Paula Jones then made perhaps under a lot of encouragement from high-ranking political officials, was that she was traumatized and damaged in some fundamental way by that encounter. That this was not just, you know, some guy made a pass at me and I turned him down. But perhaps because he was the governor of Arkansas, or maybe not even because he was governor of Arkansas, because he was then governor, but more importantly now president of the United States, it was a much more traumatic event than anything that she'd initially said to anybody would lead you to think. And ultimately, Paula Jones' lawsuit against President Clinton was dismissed for uh, Paula Jones' complete inability to establish that she'd been damaged in any way. That she was unable to demonstrate that his behavior, regardless of how, you know, reckless, inappropriate, um, immoral it might have been, that his behavior hadn't caused her damage and therefore she had no grounds to sue. And in the midst of his testimony related to the Paula Jones matter— Not not any of the other matters, regardless of their seriousness, but the Paula Jones matter was where he was uh, forced under oath to answer questions about any current uh, infidelities he might be engaged in, including the infidelity with Monica Lewinsky, which, of course, as any good prosecutor would, Prosecutor Ken Starr was aware of before he asked the questions. He wasn't fishing. He was, in, in essence, setting a trap, a trap that was sprung and, again, led members of my family to say, at last, now we've got him. So first off, just to clear the air a little bit, what if I grant for the sake of argument that Bill Clinton had done some serious things wrong with the handling FBI, of FBI files and maybe his decisions to terminate certain employees or his handling of personnel matters had been pretty clumsy and pretty reckless or that he was involved in some you know, scheming that was inappropriate or illegal in a land deal years before he even ran for president? That None of those things are actually relevant here, because despite the fact that's what the independent counsel was initially called to investigate, the investigation changed course. And at some point along the way, around the time that the actual person of the independent counsel changed, when Ken Starr stepped in to replace the previous individual, that individual had more or less shut the books on those other matters and said, listen, there's nothing there that would even be conceived to be uh, grounds for impeachment. So we're literally just talking about Bill Clinton's testimony In a deposition of a civil suit that was itself dismissed for a complete lack of the plaintiff to show any damages whatsoever. In other words, a groundless suit. And I use those terms very, very reluctantly because in these legal matters, groundless doesn't necessarily mean that Paula Jones wasn't describing the events with 100% accuracy. It simply means that she was unable to show to the court that anything that happened, even if she described it accurately, had in any way created a legal damage to her that would justify the civil trial to begin with. And on some levels, I've always wondered, don't know, but I've always wondered in the back of my mind whether Paula Jones, and her closest supporters in this, didn't know that all along, that maybe... Yeah, they were going along with something that was a little bit bigger than them, and they were caught up in a wave of things that were somewhat beyond their control. So I'm not pointing any accusing fingers at Paula Jones. I'm willing to grant, for the sake of argument, that Bill Clinton did everything exactly as she described. And beyond any doubt, anyone who's listened to any of these previous inappropriate conversations will know, where I stand on the matter, that that behavior is immoral and is unacceptable. And it's probably not the kind of person that I would want to be president of the United States. Let me kind of put a little more detail behind that in case this is uh, something that catches anyone off guard. In previous and appropriate conversations, I have shared that I am, I am extremely monogamous, that I don't have a lot of patience and I don't have a lot of tolerance, certainly not in my own life, for marital infidelity. And at the time I was a Republican, I remember voting in the Republican primary where I had the opportunity to vote for George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole and a lot of other people running for the Republican primary. See, uh, George H.W. Bush was defending himself against Republican challengers even after his first term in office. And I think a lot of the reason that he was doing that was because of Vice President Dan Quayle. That somehow it played out that the presence of Dan Quayle on the Republican ticket did not hurt George Bush as much as Lloyd Benson's. debate with Dan Quayle clearly made it seem it should have when George Bush originally won the uh, first term of office running against Michael Dukakis. But I think Quayle ultimately came back to haunt Bush because in that ultimately three-way race between Bush, Clinton, and Ross Perot, um, Bush had an albatross that I'm not sure that the other two men had. Certainly that was on my mind as a Republican voter trying to pick the best Republican nominee and very willing to replace Bush with somebody else. But I ended up voting none of the above. And essentially when I got into the voting booth for the general election later that year, I essentially voted none of the above again. I did not throw my vote to a third party, but I was looking at You know, the Al Gore piece of the Bill Clinton ticket and finding that just to be completely unacceptable. Obviously I was I I was very uncomfortable with the idea that four years later Dan Quayle might be the leading Republican in the nominations for the next president of the United States. After all having been a two term vice president, he might have the same advantage that George H. W. Bush had after being a two term vice president for Ronald Reagan. I was unwilling to tolerate that as well. So here I am as somebody who absolutely did not support Bill Clinton in any way. Uh, Judge me for that if you want to, if you're a more liberal-minded person. But as a uh, more conservative-minded person, I I don't feel any guilt about that whatsoever. In 1996, when the opportunity came to vote for Clinton to stay in office, I supported the Bob Dole nomination, both as a Republican in the primary and and also in the general election. Ironically, though... It didn't have anything to do with any of these allegations about Clinton's misbehavior. And it's a funny thing. So I want to talk about a a quick statistic. not even 100% sure that uh, these numbers are perfectly accurate, but I think I'm going to characterize them pretty well. And then I'm going to talk about how I relate to that statistic. Because around the time that the midterm election was happening in 1998... And the Republicans had used a lot of resources to raise a lot of attention about Clinton's infidelity, his misbehavior, his handling of his defense against the, uh, the Paula Jones civil suit, um, the way he handled things in, in testimony and, and just kind of in, in the Dodge and Perry game being played between him and Ken Starr's independent counsel investigation. But I think a lot of Republicans really thought, this is it. You know, we've got him where we want him. Um, The American people are going to be outraged by this. And I think what they found instead was that the American people were, by and large, as outraged or maybe even more outraged by the political handling of this hot potato than they were about anything that Clinton actually did. So you end up with these numbers that tell us that something like two-thirds of the American people felt the effort to impeach Bill Clinton was a huge mistake and they were opposed to it but maybe only 50-50 in terms of the number of people who believed that Clinton had violated his marital vows and perhaps you know tarnished the office of the presidency so forth and so on. So perhaps an even split on the number of people who felt that he'd committed adultery or that they felt that his committing of adultery was a, was an important issue. But of that number, a huge number of those people still felt that impeachment was completely inappropriate. And that's what these two numbers tell us. And a lot of times when you deal with political pundits, particularly those who view themselves as conservative or as liberal, so not the group that I consider myself in, radical moderates, people who are willing to have a 360-degree perspective on the issues of the day, not coming in with um, you know a piece of ground I need to defend or an ideological perspective that has to win out no matter what. But these folks, I think, tend to get confused when you come to it from just a left or right perspective and say, well, it doesn't make sense to me. The American people are just wrong. The American people are mixed up. We haven't delivered our message clearly. They aren't getting it. Because if 50% of the American people think this guy committed adultery and that that's a big deal, then 50% or more of the American people should be in favor of impeaching him. And I will tell you that you can probably find some Republican friends of mine today who still don't get the difference between people saying, I will grant you that everything he's been accused of doing in the sexual area probably did occur. And I'm, I'm also going to insist that I'm not interested in impeaching him over it. There was an interview on the network news during the time, you know, again building up to the presidential election. So well before this impeachment vote, where I think they had an interview with a woman from South Dakota. I could be wrong. It might have been North Dakota, but it was kind of your classic little old lady from the Dakotas. So you're dealing with a pretty red state here. And you're dealing with people who tend to have a great deal of strong Midwestern conservative values. They asked her if she was outraged over the president lying under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky and being on television lying on TV about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And she said she wasn't outraged about that at all. She was disappointed about the extramarital affair, but she would have been much more more disappointed if he'd been the type of man who would kiss and tell. Now, maybe you're offended by that. The idea that what, you know, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton were doing could be, you know, summarized down to the expression kiss and tell. Maybe it's a much bigger deal than that. It's certainly perhaps a very different kind of kiss than that. But I think that she captured the idea pretty well from a certain generation of people who, if not really politically active from a conservative Republican perspective, sort of thought, wow, what are we dredging all this up for? You know, this is not the first president of the United States to do some really nefarious things, you know, from a sexual perspective. You know, the allegations of John F. Kennedy don't even need to be repeated, right? And if you go even all the way back to um, 100 years earlier, it's not hard to find people who have tales that they chose not to tell about things that presidents have done behind their wives' backs. This one ended up being an impeachable offense, primarily because it was a Republican Congress, and the president was Democrat, Bill Clinton. So what happened on December the 19th, 1998, was that the House of Representatives had four votes to, uh, uh, to impeach, four articles of impeachment they were considering. The grounds of perjury passed by a 228 to 206 margin, obstruction of justice by a 221 to 12 margin. So we're talking about very close votes here. To be fair, one of the ones that failed which would been a second count of perjury, this time related specifically to the Paula Jones situation. That one failed 205 to 229. And by far the most serious of them all, the notion of the abuse of power, abusing the power of presidency, violating the oath of the presidency, that one failed 148 to 285, which suggests that perhaps even inside the House of Representatives, this difference of opinion was there that it wasn't just you may have lied under oath and therefore you've violated every level of trust that's available to us. Maybe it was more a matter of saying, hang on, that's a, a specific instance of a private or potentially private sexual matter. Granted, an extramarital sexual matter, but still a sexual matter. Now, before I get into my concerns over why I think the House of Representatives made a mistake, let me just talk briefly about whether or not some of the hyperbole here makes sense. Over the years, there's been a lot of discussion, and that discussion has included notions that the president was some sort of pedophile, that he was, you know, taking advantage of an innocent, young, you know, waif-like individual, you know, too uh, sexually immature and emotionally immature to defend herself. She was a 21-year-old woman, and by many accounts, she instigated the relationship, okay? Her apology shows a maturity that Bill Clinton's explanations have never done, so from an emotional level, from an emotional maturity level, I think you could make an argument that Monica Lewinsky was in some ways at least equally or more mature than Bill Clinton in the matter. The other question was whether or not Bill Clinton had um, broken his vows to his wife, whether he had been unfaithful to her. And I offer this perspective, not having done any research, not having asked either the president or the current secretary of state, Mrs. Clinton, either one of the, I haven't asked this question of them, But I have a sneaky suspicion that even though we might find it very offensive that a wealthy and powerful couple would have a different view of their marital vows than what you would expect, you know, a set of people in their late teens, early 20s from the Midwest who grew up in middle class, lower middle class families. You know, I don't want to go too far in suggesting that there's a big difference here, but there might be, because I would make the argument that perhaps Bill Clinton was not unfaithful to Hillary in the things that truly mattered to her. Maybe she never expected his, his um, sexual fidelity. What she definitely expected, or at least when you look at the way they've lived their lives, she seemed to have expected some, de- some degree of celebrity, some degree of money, some political power, and some influence. And the greatest threat to that was not anything he did with Monica Lewinsky. The greatest threat to that was the fact that what he did with Monica Lewinsky and allegedly with Paula Jones snowballed into testimony before a grand jury that then led to articles impeachment. And all of that could have proved at that point could have proved to be very definitely a a breaking of his vows with Hillary. It's telling to me that they still remain a couple and a couple for reasons that Whatever else may be going on, certainly seemed to be political. That there's a good deal of political benefit to them remaining married to each other. I'm wondering if that would have been true had he actually been convicted in the U. S. Senate and removed from office. That might have actually represented a betrayal in ways that anything he did with Monica Lewinsky didn't measure up to. Just an argument. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. So I think you can see that I approach this position with with intentionally a more open mind than the mind of somebody who might have you know set. Set some traps along the way. Hope the president would fall into them. Um, was going to show the American people a thing or two that if these Americans were too stupid to know better than to elect this guy in the first place, or to re-elect this guy in the second place, we were going to teach them a lesson. Well, what the American people did in the midterm elections in 1998 was, you know, shift the balance of power. Not completely, but the Republicans lost seats in that midterm election with. The um, other party sitting in the White House, which, as we've seen in this most recent set of elections, is not all that common of a thing. It's not completely rare, completely uncommon. It's normal, though, that the party that is not in the White House would gain seats because the president does many things which are easy for congressional representatives and senators to campaign against. But in this case, the American people spoke in those midterm elections and said, hey, The Gallup polls aren't wrong. Two-thirds of us think that this impeachment thing is a big mess. It's a big waste of time, big waste of money, big embarrassment, and it doesn't make sense for us to pursue. It's not the kind of thing we'd remove a president from office over, which gets me back to the original question. What is not just high crime, but what is other high crime? See, one of the, probably the biggest embarrassing moment for Bill Clinton was when he was stuck in the awkward position of having to define what the term is meant, that he claimed to have more than one potential definition for the verb is, is, in his head. Now, part of the reason that he got in that mess was that he had testified under oath that he, he wasn't in a relationship with the woman, that he is not in a relationship with her, and that he ended up meaning by that that at that very day, or at that very moment, he wasn't in a relationship with her, but you know, very recently he might have been, but that didn't count because is means now. <laughs> not is means currently or recent or any sort of ongoing pattern. Is means right now. And he defined the word is in such a way that, you know, it gave him some political expediency. He thought it would give him more political cover than it truly did. And it really is, you know, on a level of ridiculousness, almost off the scale, to be actually trying to tell the powers that be, the American public, a grand jury, that their understanding of the word is is insufficient, incomplete, or incorrect. However, here's what the U.S. Constitution says about impeaching. And this is very telling. Article 2, Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be impeached from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. I think we need to make sure we understand what the word other means as well. Most of the conversation stemming from the, the impeachment question, is the way I would word that, hanging over the President of the United States in 1998 and 1999, was whether or not what he had done merited impeachment, and which takes you all the way back to this particular section of the Constitution and understanding what those words mean. But the conversation tends to go in a very different direction than what I want to take it in. You tended to hear one group of people say that the President can only be impeached for violating a law which is perhaps a problem because certainly most people who would have been in favor of impeaching Richard Nixon in the early 1970s didn't necessarily feel that they had to cite a particular law. A pattern of misbehavior and abuse of power was enough. Now, note, the Congress voted quite emphatically that abuse of power was an inappropriate charge to be leveled against Bill Clinton, that the things that he was accused of doing did not have anything to do with his use and abuse of power, that essentially... Even the Congress, again, by very narrow margins, recognized that this was all stemming from whether or not he was honest under oath and whether or not he tried to interfere with a um, independent counsel investigation about things that he did privately with Paula Jones when he was governor of Arkansas and answers to related sexual questions, perhaps a pattern of infidelity that came up at the same time. So nobody was actually making the argument that Bill Clinton had abused his power in the same way people had been arguing before about Richard Nixon. That's an important point to consider. On the other hand, the opposite point of view is that this notion of high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't necessarily have to mean that you've broken a law. And the argument that I was getting from the same family members who felt like that Bill Clinton being impeached was simply a matter of formality, now it was a slam dunk. Uh, He was given the opportunity to lie under oath. He did lie under oath. Bing, Bing, bang, boom, that's that. But in this case, the point of view is that the president doesn't even have to break a law. He doesn't even have to do something wrong. He can even do things that for a common citizen we would ignore. But his office of the presidency is so lofty that we have to make sure that you know the president lives up to that standard. And if he fails, he can be impeached, even if he's done something that most people know somebody who's done the exact same thing or could have done the exact same thing. So you have this, these two extreme views. And I, of course, falling somewhere in the middle. I certainly can see us impeaching a president at some point in time for doing things which aren't technically illegal for a common citizen to do because the president of the United States has the opportunity to do things in a much more powerful way than the common citizen has to do. But in this specific case, we must remember that everything being leveled against Bill Clinton was being leveled inside a very common case. Again, the whole notion of his abuse of power was pretty much dismissed in an emphatic way by the House of Representatives. It never appeared before the Senate it was not an article of impeachment that the Senate, you know, had to had to preside over. So in this case we're saying we've got a civil trial for sexual misconduct for employer-employee relations which I think we would describe today as sexual harassment. And how did that play out? And this question I've been asking for probably more like 13 years now, because I've been asking this question much longer than this impeachment scandal has been going on. You can kind of see where this whole Paula Jones thing was going to be heading even before we got anywhere near 1998. And the questions I've been asking that I have not gotten what I consider to be a satisfactory answer is, I'd love to know the name and the circumstances of any United States citizen who has been convicted and imprisoned for committing perjury in a deposition of a civil trial that itself was dismissed for lack of damages. Let me say this again. You've got a civil trial against an individual. So you've got a a dispute between two citizens and the plaintiff in this case has had their case dismissed because the judge found you've got no grounds to ask a judgment against this person. You haven't been able to demonstrate that their behavior, regardless how unsatisfactory it is, has actually been legally damaging to you. If in that case, deposition. So we're not even on trial here yet. This is before we even get to trial. In the deposition, under oath, the person commits perjury. Okay. Yeah, on a certain level, I think there's a lot of American citizens who would love to see us chase these things down. Nothing is more frustrating to me when watching television shows like, you know, cop shows, like Law & Order, when you know for a fact that a character in the story has committed perjury, and that perjury just sort of disappears. That you got the conviction anyway, so the DA doesn't seem to be pursuing that other, that other avenue. Or you say, well, it was a family member, you know, they, they were wrong, but we're not going to pursue a case against them. We're, we're happy to put some of this behind us. Nothing is more frustrating, you know, than that. And if you really have, again, that, that sort of teenage sense of justice, that everything should be fair and it drives you nuts when people get away with stuff, you can see somebody being upset about this. But point of fact— there's not a lot, if any, cases in U.S. history where we've actually had a district attorney continue to pursue somebody for committing perjury or allegedly committing perjury in a deposition where the civil case wasn't a criminal matter. The civil matter itself was dismissed. If the if the judiciary essentially wipes away the entire civil claim saying, hey, no matter what happens in the course of the trial, there's no judgment that's going to be rendered here. There's no damage been done. You don't see anybody go back then and say, well, We're still going to chase down this crime of perjury and we're going to use this crime of perjury as a district, as a district attorney's office to arrest somebody, convict them and throw them in prison. What this tells us here a little bit is what the meaning of the word other is, because let's make no, no, make no bones about it. Perjury is a crime. So whether you, on the question of Clinton stood on the, he has to violate a law side of the equation Or he just needs to violate his power or his oath in a serious way kind of an equation. Doesn't much matter, because this one, he violated a law. You tend to see the people who insist that the president must violate a law in order to get impeached being the kind of people who have a a very high standard of what impeachment should be. In other words, they're not going to let the little stuff trickle in. And yet, here we are, with the president violating the law of perjury, and everyone coming in saying, well, any little crime will do. You know, Did again... That he rolled down his window and spit on the sidewalk while driving down the road in Flagstaff, Arizona, because if he did, that might be enough. Well, you know what the American people pretty much said in the court of public opinion that that wasn't enough. That we're not going to impeach a president for having bad manners. We're not going to impeach a president for you know cheating on his wife. You know, I've got some strong opinions about adultery, and at some point, I will share them. I think if the Republican Party wanted to stamp out the problem of adultery, this gave them an opportunity. Because again. Yeah, you might have had two thirds of the American people who didn't want Clinton removed from office, but you had 50 percent, give or take, who thought, yeah, this, this adultery thing's a pretty bad deal. He shouldn't be doing that. That's unacceptable. Well, hey, let's take advantage of this opportunity to once and for all stamp out this open marriage nonsense that's existed in our culture pretty much since the mid-1960s and, and correct that problem once and for all. The Republicans chose not to do it. And in point of fact, one of the great ironies to me from a Christian perspective is that the Christian right, at some point along the way in this whole Clinton nonsense, seemed to forget that adultery is at least as big a deal, if not a much bigger deal, than bearing false witness. Because Bill Clinton was bearing false witness against somebody who wanted him to bear false witness. And she wanted him to bear false witness because she wanted what they'd done to remain private. And she wanted it to remain private because she and a lot of other little old ladies in the Dakotas and elsewhere thought that it was probably pretty rude to kiss and tell. But the adultery is maybe the most offensive of all the things going on here from a Christian perspective. And certainly the adultery was the core behavior that caused all the mess to begin with. If not the adultery with Paula Jones, if you, you know consider making that sort of you know, lurid offer an act of adultery, I think I would agree it is. Certainly the one with Monica Lewinsky later. And how quickly everyone from the quote-unquote right seemed to forget that adultery was a big deal. It started out as a big deal until some people realized, well, we're probably not going to impeach him for that. Because if we stood up in front of both houses of the U.S. Congress and asked both the the congressmen and the senators and the congresswomen and 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 senators to step down from office, if they had ever done anything that seemed to violate this high standard we're setting for equality of marital fidelity, we might not have a quorum left with which to impeach. We might not have enough people to form the right judicial body. To actually try him on charges of impeachment and you saw some embarrassing things coming out during or after that newt gingrich stepped down because not not just have not just because of his past infidelity but the nature of his past infidelity you had people who were essentially trying the president and impeaching him for the act of violating his marital vows when their track record was nothing to write home about
1: hello 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 hello
0: Pollyanna Cowgirl Records
1: Podcast. It's music. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a... Radio it's station. Like a it's like a mixtape. It's like a mixtape. And everybody knows that mixtapes mean I love you. That's right. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci, specifically. Tony Pucci, specifically.
0: The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast, now available at simplysyndicated.com. If the president is to be vilified for not understanding the word is, or at least not respecting all the possible interpretations and trying to be as honest and forthright as he could by interpreting what the courts were asking him to say, I also turned to those people who voted in favor of impeachment and who voted to convict him of impeachment and said, hey, I'm a little concerned that you don't know what the word other means. We're talking about treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, You can be as duplicitous as I believe Clinton was being and say, well, the word other can be interpreted in lots of different ways. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know what? In this construct, it was the way of our founding fathers to say, hey, you got treason, probably the most serious offense we can come up with. You also got bribery, kind of a less serious offense, but still a pretty serious offense for somebody in public office. And you got other high crimes and misdemeanors. And in that sense, other here means stuff like that. Stuff like that. Other does not give you the right to impeach a president for spitting on the sidewalk or jaywalking. It doesn't, because in this construct, other high crimes and misdemeanors means you may have a lot of leeway on how you define what a high crime and a misdemeanor is. But other tells you it's gotta look a little bit like treason and bribery, folks. And here's how I interpret that. You gotta find me one other person in the history of our country who's actually been convicted and imprisoned for committing the exact same kind of perjury that Bill Clinton committed. You ask any district attorney out there, and they'll tell you that what happened in that deposition is not that unusual, that you don't have to work too hard to find cases, especially in civil matters, where in the deposition stage of the civil matter, one of the persons who's under oath and testifying isn't being very forthright, isn't telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, is being mighty weaselly about what words like is mean and words like other mean, is actually not coming forward when asked questions like, is there anything else? And you just don't see cases of those people when the actual core case, the civil case behind it all has been dismissed. You don't see district attorneys spending millions and millions of dollars chasing down the perjury in those instances. Meaning if we're not even treating it like a little itty bitty crime for Joe average citizen, how could it possibly be a high crime from a constitutional perspective? Here's the kind of example that I used at the time to try to explain this to friends who were dismayed because they understood that probably at the time, and even now, from a right-to-left political perspective, I'm either kind of dead on in the middle or perhaps slightly right in the middle. Certainly when it comes to questions of sexual ethics, I'm going to fall in the line of being more conservative than liberal, I'm sure. And they they were just confused by the fact that I didn't see this the same way they did. And they were confused over the meaning of the word other, just like a lot of the people who I think, you know, pursued the course of impeachment. But here's what was going on there in my head. Other high crimes and misdemeanors. If you look at this year in college football in the United States of America, so I'm looking at the 2010 college football season, we're about to hit the bowl season because I'm going to put this out around December 18th, December 19th. And you look at that from the perspective of who should be playing in the national championship game. Because the top tier of big-time college football in America doesn't use a playoff system. You basically have one game where two teams are selected by an elaborate process, using a lot of calculations and so forth, and the result of that process picks the teams. And essentially, what if I were to tell you that the teams that are eligible to play in that national championship game are either the winners of the conferences that represent the bowl championship series, so the six quote unquote, major conferences or other highly regarded college football teams. So this year we'd be talking about you know, the BCS championship game should go to Oregon, Auburn or other highly regarded college football teams. This particular year, with not just a little bit of controversy, that could include schools like Texas Christian University, Wisconsin. Those are the kind of teams that you might be looking at. But what if I came along and said, well, you know what, highly regarded college football teams well wouldn't that include schools like you know the university of michigan wouldn't that include notre dame you don't get much more highly regarded in the history of college football than notre dame and when you start looking for schools like colorado notre dame michigan you're finding some schools that have won recent national championships clearly these are highly regarded schools and i bet you we could find other universities that have maybe they're highly regarded in the sense of how big their athletic budget is or, you know, how much of a TV audience they command when, when they're televised, when they play on TV. Uh, what about the University of Texas? Um, this year, Texas didn't even win enough games to qualify to play in a bowl game, any bowl game. They had a losing record. Is your definition of other so weak than me saying that the teams participating in the BCS National Championship game should come from the winners of the major BCS conferences or other highly regarded college football teams like Texas and Notre Dame. That standard allows you to, to boot undefeated Oregon and undefeated Auburn out of that game. It enables you to ignore undefeated Texas Christian University. It also enables you to uh, ignore the one loss, kind of round robin of teams in the Big Ten that played each other and beat each other up. So you can ignore Wisconsin, you can ignore Ohio State, you can ignore Michigan State. We're going to take a team from that conference instead. We're going to take Michigan. You know, Michigan might have lost all three of them. But doesn't much matter because they're a highly regarded college football team. The word other matters here. Other tells us the kind of thing we're talking about. I've created a list in a series that says I'm talking about treason. I'm talking about giving our military secrets to the Russians. Treason. I'm talking about bribery. I'm talking about somebody who lets people give him millions of dollars and then changes the legal course of our country or changes the way we're electing, you know, nominating people to judicial office. Is refusing to kiss and tell really the same thing? And if you believe so, then please look in the mirror and ask yourself if your perspective doesn't come from presumption. The presumption that was also present in members of my family who said, Of course this qualifies for other high crimes and misdemeanors because now we finally got him. You know, all this time we've been looking for anything he did and we can't find something that's big enough. Well, this one, it's finally big enough. It's inside the White House. He's having sex with an intern. It's it's a big deal. It's big enough. But I would tell you that those people were looking for any excuse to impeach the president, not for a constitutional justification for impeaching the president. And the biggest problem of all is that if you do not interpret this thing as being necessarily a legal question where my my thought is well let's find somebody else who's been convicted of the same crime let's at least have some kind of you know some kind of integrity in our standard if instead maybe it's just like you know the the esteem we have for the office or the quality of the office and and therefore therefore that matters more than anything else well you know what that esteem could be looked at from the perspective of other governments it's not necessarily the way i would go but the other governments i think spoke loudly and clearly that it was kind of ridiculous that we were spending all this time energy money and political capital on an impeachment over something like this now the bigger question is what do you do with the two-thirds of the american people who said we shouldn't impeach him the chief things missing in all of the bill clinton scandal was perspective you didn't see a lot of people who had a good enough objective standard or a good enough vision about what a political perspective might be and as americans this is something we're not very good at we've become increasingly worse at it during my lifetime of seeing everything through the rubric of whoever we think we are so i've maybe i have a religious right perspective on this issue or i have an american liberal perspective on this issue you know neither of those satisfy me but I've got to confess, if I come to this thing with what I call a radical moderate perspective on the issue, that is still a perspective from the inside. Our different drummer this week is somebody who brought a perspective from the outside, and his words still resonate more than 170 years later. Our different drummer is Alexis Charles-Henri Clarelle de Tocqueville. Alex de Tocqueville. He was a French political thinker who used his travels in America, England, Algeria, and his own country to document the monumental changes in what we now call the modern age. The modern age was essentially the aftermath of the revolutions that took place in America and France and the rise of democratic republics, along with the challenges posed by what we now call modernism. His work documents the touch points in the relationship between the old world and the new world, also the way religion and government interact at a point when huge scientific discoveries were on the horizon. His observations are credited with identifying what a second revolution might look like in America, which would become the Civil War, as we call it, and the impact of racial issues that still reverberate throughout American society today. He also identified the United States and Russia as the world's two superpowers, more than a century before the aftermath of World War II would prove him correct. What I appreciate most about de Tocqueville is his outsider's perspective. It isn't necessarily objective in an historian's sense, but he also isn't just a reporter, and certainly not a reporter in the mold of journalism at the time. We're talking about the 1830s, you know, probably 1831 to 1840. De Tocqueville gave Americans and Europeans a perspective on the previous 60 years, and that perspective has lasted for centuries. I don't think it could have been written by an American or an Englishman, And perhaps de Tocqueville couldn't have done as good a job as a Frenchman writing about his own revolution in France. It needed to come from the outside. It isn't just his sense of time, though. Most every political science undergraduate in America is going to spend some time with de Tocqueville because of how his ideas have endured in interesting ways. Perhaps not always on target, he wasn't necessarily a northern star that navigates us from then to now, but he's nevertheless been a light that provides a useful reference point in the sky. When you look at the history of the united states and this new world old world interaction some examples again dating back to this period from 1831 to 1840 so roughly 175 years ago i'm going to refer to both volumes of his work of democracy in america which came from his travels to america with Gustave de beaumont to study the american prison system but the result of his work was far more elaborate than that So let me just offer a few quotes from de Tocqueville, give us a sense of exactly how de Tocqueville represented some pretty far-ranging thinking at such an early and critical time. I know of no country indeed where the love of money has taken a stronger hold on the affections of men, and where the profounder contempt is expressed for the theory of the permanent equality of property. Now, when you hear the word socialist being thrown around in political conversation today, you know that what de Tocqueville was saying 175 years ago is right on target. He didn't know of a country then that had a greater love of money, and where anybody who challenges uh, that or suggests that there should be some sort of equality in property is going to be vilified. Another quote, In order to enjoy the inestimable benefits that liberty of the press ensures, it is necessary to submit to the inevitable evils that it creates. For me, his, his perspectives on the press are interesting, partly because of my background. I'll share another one that speaks right to the question of, of the press. I am far from denying that newspapers in democratic countries lead citizens to do very ill-considered things in common. But without newspapers, there would hardly be any common action at all. So they mend many more ills than they cause. In the United States, except for slaves, servants, and the destitute fed by townships, Everyone has the vote, and this is an indirect contributor to lawmaking. Anyone who wishes to attack the law is thus reduced to adopting one of two obvious courses. They must either change the nation's opinion or trample its wishes underfoot. Here's what De Tocqueville has to say about matters of faith, which, as you know, of great interest to me. I'm going to offer two opinions, and these two opinions are quite telling. First, despotism may govern without faith, but liberty cannot. How is it possible that society should escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened in proportion, as the political tie is relaxed? And what can be done with a people who are their own masters if they are not submissive to a deity? Couple that with this. They all attributed the peaceful dominion of religion in their country mainly to the separation of church and state. This is de Tocqueville saying that all of the Americans he spoke with attribute the peaceful dominion of religion... To the separation of church and state. I do not hesitate to affirm that during my stay in America, I did not meet a single individual of the clergy or the laity who was not of the same opinion on this point. You hear a lot of people talking about church and state not being an original idea, not being a founding concept, not being part of our country. The separation of church and state is so fully part of our country that when de Tocqueville was interviewing people in the early 1830s, he not only found that everyone seemed to be conversant with the idea, but he didn't find a single person who said it was a bad idea or an un-american idea more from de Tocqueville. i am obliged to confess that i do not regard the abolition of slavery as a means of warding off the struggle of the two races in the southern states the negroes may long remain slaves without complaining but if they are once raised to the level of freemen they will soon revolt at being deprived of almost all their civil rights and as they cannot become equals of the whites they will speedily show themselves as enemies. Now, this is de Tocqueville's point of view, not necessarily mine. I'm hopeful that our society has actually done a lot to confer those equal rights. But it's an interesting point that here he is some you know 25 years before the Civil War, making observations about what might happen after the Civil War and maybe even 100 years after that. Here's another religious observation. Muhammad brought down from heaven and put into the Quran, not religious doctrines only, but political maxims, criminal and civil laws, and scientific theories. The Gospels, on the other hand, deal only with the general relations between man and God and between man and man. Beyond that, they teach nothing and do not oblige people to believe anything. That alone, among a thousand reasons, is enough to show that Islam will not be able to hold its power long in ages of enlightenment and democracy, while Christianity is destined to reign in such ages as in all others. Well, a couple of thoughts on this. First off, I'm not offering a criticism of Islam. These are the words of de Tocqueville. But, you know, it seems interesting to me that Islam probably as is a religious you know, organization, is not a big fan of democracy. Because democracy opens up rival ideas, and rival ideas is not something that Islam is particularly open to, or at least not not by its nature particularly open to. I have a different thought, though. What if Christianity becomes as obsessed with rules as, as Islam? And to be fair, you're not going to have a conversation with uh, a Muslim for very long about religion before the focus is going to be on law. So in an effort to compete with you know rival ideals, you know, different ideologies in the Middle Ages, maybe Christianity and Islam became much harder to distinguish from each other, each one of them very much focused on, you know, a group of rules and a set of laws. So my challenge to Christians is this if a conversation about Islam, seriously and intensely held, with an open sharing of ideas, is ultimately going to become about laws, isn't a conversation about Christianity supposed to ultimately be about faith? And what does it mean if any notion of the conversation leaning toward faith is a complete surprise to an unchurched person you may be speaking to. Christianity looks more like Islam today than it probably did 1,500 years ago. Now, to a certain degree, that's perhaps to be expected. Um, Islam is a conversation in the marketplace of ideas in a way that it wasn't 1,500 years ago. But if de Tocqueville was right about this distinction between Islam and Christianity, I think that that distinction has been put under peril even in the last 50 or 60 years couple of more points from Tocqueville before I close this different drummer section. In the United States, the majority undertakes to supply a multitude of ready-made opinions for the use of individuals who are thus relieved from the necessity of forming opinions of their own. I can't tell you how many times I've had people question me on why I don't just accept the quote-unquote company line from either the Republicans or the Democrats or anyone else on matters of political importance. Why do I insist on having a unique perspective? Well, that question tells you that de Tocqueville was right, you know, all those, you know, decades and decades and, well, really a couple centuries ago, that a lot of people in America try to avoid the work of forming opinions of their own. And there's a lot of people, powerful people in powerful positions who are more than happy to deploy a set of ready-made choices for us to pick from. A couple of points about the way political power has shifted here in the last couple of decades even or before there are two things which a democratic people will always find very difficult to begin a war and to end it. No protracted war can fail to endanger the freedom of a democratic country. All those who seek to destroy the liberties of a democratic nation ought to know that war is the surest and shortest means to accomplish this. A lot of people have complained about the Patriot Act, other elements of freedom that have been impacted by decisions made in the aftermath of 9-11-2001. And it's exactly these points that uh, de Tocqueville is bringing up. One last question on the minority relations that he speaks to as well. If there ever are great revolutions there in America, they will be caused by the presence of blacks upon American soil. That is to say, it will not be the equality of our social conditions, but rather their inequality, which may give rise thereto. So we have some challenges in our country today, and I think it's encouraging that almost every undergraduate political science student in America is asked to spend some time in these Of Democracy in America books written years and years ago by this French political theorists. I'm not going to suggest that I find the books an ultimately satisfying read, but there's a lot in there. A lot in there worth agreeing with, some things in there worth disagreeing with. And both those agreements and disagreements are fruitful enough to justify Alexis de Tocqueville being our different drummer, particularly when we're talking about these these types of constitutional questions, these questions about how we should govern and how we do govern. It may be reasonable to question whether it makes sense for me to have spent time on a controversial topic from 12 years ago. Certainly the questions raised by the, you can make an argument that the questions raised by the Clinton scandal um, and the Monica Lewinsky affair have long since been answered and do not need to be discussed anymore. But there's a couple reasons why I bring them up. First, I think knowing where I stand on this matter might help explain some you know, other points of view that I'm going to offer in the future. If I take a hard line toward adultery. It's important to know that the hard line toward adultery is balanced out by this sort of soft line that I've taken toward the Clinton impeachment question. But also, I think that it's a fair point to say the way we behaved or the way we misbehaved as a nation, the way we refused to listen to our own people, the way we showed a lot of immaturity relative to how we govern versus how some of the older great nations that are still in place in this world would have governed. Those things are telling. We can learn from our mistakes but we can't learn from our mistakes if we don't pay attention to them. And if you've ever been tempted to vilify a political party or an individual, an ex-president, for example, for claiming he didn't understand what the word is means, then I think you've got to look inwardly as well and say, you know what? Maybe the people that I've been in league with all this time have not done a very good job of defining words like other. These are both simple terms that are easy to understand if you don't put your politics ahead of logic and reason. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And show notes are enabled at the website, http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.